0: welcome to slayer fest 98 i am your host adam sass and i am here with the co-host
1: ian carlos crawford
0: hi adam hello um we are here today with some fabulous guests our first one is a tv critic for the new yorker magazine uh an author of the upcoming book i like to watch out in june
2: hello i'm Emily
0: Hi. Um, And our other guest is editor of Gigantic Sequence, as well as Ian's very best friend.
3: Oh, gee. Kimberly Ann Southwick.
1: Yay. Yay. I am very happy to have you both back here. We are here to discuss, so far, one of the lighter season six episodes, uh, Life Serial. And Emily and Adam both specifically requested this episode. So, um, Adam, I'll let you start.
0: Perfect. It's a sleeper hit. Um, Yeah, it's one of the lighter (laughs) episodes on its face. Season six is the dark season, Um, arguably the darkest. I know a lot more people probably die in season seven, but this just sort of emotionally feels way darker this season. So I think this is sort of a bright spot. This and the musical are just sort of like early um, sort of like final post because it's not it's about to get very not funny for the rest of the season <laughs> um, yeah. yeah so um, yeah that's definitely a big reason why I like it because you know you kind of get to enjoy everybody you get to enjoy sort of the normalcy you get you know Tara and everybody no one's broken up with yet nobody's endangered like you're just you're sort of in that like more sitcom time of like oh here's my here's my cast of characters here's my crew and it's the yeah. it's the warmer aspect of tv you get it,
2: um, it is but at the same time it's the it's the true introduction of the trio and there mm. i think it's such a clever episode because it is very funny especially the last two-thirds have some of the best slapstick on the show really memorable things great performances really funny characters But it's also basically the trio who perceive themselves and are presented as kind of a light threat that are just doing something that's almost more like a prank. But when you see it in retrospect, it's actually incredible um, foreshadowing for all the truly sick stuff that's to come and, and the fact that they end up being these extremely sinister and prescient misogynist villains, but they perceive themselves just as nerds kind of doing something fun and funny. So I totally. love the the mixture of tones in the episode is great to me. yeah,
0: it's so great and ominous. like there's there's this um there is this sort of sense of like you were saying of, well, we're just testing some stuff out. We're gonna do some of the harmless stuff first, but it's so invasive. you <laughs> like yeah. is it, once you think of it, like it's just it's it's really like this sort of magical gaslighting, especially the like the time loop. and when they make t- you know um everything speed up. it's just. Buffy doesn't know anything has happened. She just thinks she's going out of her mind.
2: Well, it was funny. When I was rewatching it, I was really struck by the fact that I was like, the first third of the episode is actually not great. Like the the time speed up is interesting and scary and reminds me of Earshot um, because it's Mm -hmm. that same situation where she's on a campus and she feels like she's losing her mind. So that's pretty effective. But I, I don't actually think the first two things that they do are that interesting. It's once the time loop kicks in, and then the aftermath of that, where she's hanging out with Spike, is both funny and great. And you know, I know it's a Groundhog's Day thing, but the time loop just works so well. <laughs> and it's So funny to me, even after I've seen it a million times, like know, everything about it was a monkey paw, this is funny. Um, so. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um,
1: but so I wanted to start with the opening and talk about what we all felt about that angel visit. I mean, clearly they had limitations, right? Different networks, they weren't allowed to cross over yet. <laughs> And it reads like that, but I also think Buffy saying I don't really want to talk about it does track with like who she is. And especially, I feel like starting in season five, she gets even more into her loner, uh, I don't need help from anyone kind of like type A, I'm in control personality. So while I know that it was basically just they had to address that Angel would want to see her, that she would want to see him, and they couldn't have them be on screen together... I do like it. I think it
2: works and it's fine, right? It works, but it's kind of bananas, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't remember the whole thing that well. It, they, they do their best. They build a bridge. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm just going to complain about this because it just bugs me every time. Buffy is in an enormous crisis. <laughs> she's, she's really <laughs> suffered. She's had this major loss. Like, everything is a mess. And I, I do feel like everyone's like, you know, get a job, pay your bills. <laughs> this is <laughs> ridiculous. Really like, I have trouble watching scenes where Giles is not simply stepping in and actually doing stuff. It, it right. just, it, it, it's strange well, to me that she really is just sort of um, left to cope with all of this stuff by herself. But even though people are being helpful, they're being helpful in these kind of slightly hands-off ways. I, and I, I, I'm happy once they actually get into the meat of the episode, because I kind of feel like shaking them. Well, <laughs> it's,
0: it, Cause it's, it's so much because she is dealing with, the traumas prior to her death and then the trauma of death and then the trauma of coming back to life. Yeah. Um, And everyone's like, listen, I've got to get to class. I I would love to stay. Like they just, everyone's so on with their own business. (laughs) It's just real.
2: (laughs) By the way, speaking of gaslighting, and this is the final complaint I'll make about the entire ensemble of the Buffy. It's it's not just the trio that does this. It's like, Giles is (laughs) like, Jealousy oh. when supernatural things happen is like, you know, you're probably just under a lot of stress. Time really isn't heating up. <laughs> and then Xander is really quite a dick to her. Um,
0: yeah, Xander fires her.
2: This is my job. <laughs> like, a grip on Look. And also, I don't really remember the details of any of this, but I truly don't understand why the Slayer Council is not stepping in and providing very clear financial support for this situation. <laughs> so pretty much everyone around her does let her down, but luckily Spike is in a very strange mode of support, seduction, and just general weirdness. So I really can understand why she wants to hang out with him. It it actually makes, Oh yeah. It makes the arc of the season make more sense that everybody else just drops the ball so severely.
3: Or and just really tries to make it seem like I mean I know where what is this, five or six episodes in? Five, yes? Makes so, yeah. everybody tries to make everything seem like she's just like had like, you know, some minor setback where yeah. she like <laughs> dropped out of college and had to get a job, you know, rather than this very major thing. They're they're trying to normalize it. Like, oh let's all sit around the table and have dinner and ask about how your visit to your vampire ex-boyfriend?
2: Went? Yeah. I mean, I realize the whole thing is sort of metaphorical and they're you, you can be like, okay, let's say that Supernatural stuff didn't exist and she was just, had dropped out of school, had this major family loss and went through a terrible breakup with an elderly uh, like semi-recovering alcoholic. Like, it would still be. They should still offer her more more intense support. And Can I ask you something, actually? in I never noticed that in the classroom scene, they're having that weird conversation about Does the world, does the world exist because of how you see it or how the world forces you to see it? And it's the Mm -hmm. logical concept that Buffy didn't understand. And I was watching it thinking this must relate to the episode and I never noticed it, but it doesn't seem to. (laughs) Did you have thoughts on that classroom scene? Because it goes on for quite a bit. It feels, it feels like the David Fury-written part of the episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Kim, as a professor, what do you
3: think? I, I wanted to go back and reread it and try to relate it to the episode, but by the time I got to the end of the episode, I had forgotten that I wanted to do that. So I don't know <laughs> what that says about it. But at the time, I, I was trying to follow what they were saying uh, and apply it to Buffy's life. And I think at first, it definitely sounded like it could be applicable, but- the longer I listened, the more uh, yes. I was paying attention to how Buffy was feeling about it rather than what they were saying. <laughs> you
2: too had a spell cast on you. I do like that in the show, Buffy is just not a book smart person. She's never done well at school. I mean, it's one of the things I like about her as a hero. Yeah. They just they don't make her good at everything. And analytical thinking is really not her forte. And it's I don't mm-hmm. know. I kinda yeah, like that's that. yeah. fine. Yeah. And it's fine. It's not it's not something that she has to be, you know, great at everything and it's part of her insecurity. my my not like deep thought about the classroom scene is
1: the girl who gets called on the first one that gets called on she's the same character that is the one that wishes the frat bros would have their hearts torn out by Anya in season seven a very weird callback because I was like I looked it up because I was like I'm pretty sure this student is the same student we see in season seven and she has like her own like Buffy wiki and on, on Buffy wiki page on the Buffy wiki page. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I appreciate the show does the callbacks kind of well. I usually like when they do that.
0: Well, it's good because um, I do another reason I like Life Serial is because so much of season six feels just so. I mean, I mean, this is where we really start to feel Buffy like aging on the page rather than like you know like you forget she's supposed to be nineteen or twenty or right. whatever. Yeah, and when you do set reset it back in the classroom setting it just feels so much more you get that sort of initial power of the buffy concept which is this is a student who is having to have the weight of the world on her shoulders when she's just like trying to pay the bills and be like kind of single mom to dawn that's Ooh. when it really starts to like the the initial concept of the show starts to feel like it drifts further apart and so i i do like these episodes where she's in a classroom and you know struggling to like figure out you know history and philosophy and, and all these other things while dealing with um monsters etc
3: it's interesting i was thinking about what emily said earlier about the slayer council like stepping in or not and i wonder like they, they likely don't often have to step in after a certain point because they probably die young very yeah long. i yeah. I was thinking
2: they're yeah. just not prepared for
0: this.
1: <laughs> it's funny because Kirsten White, um, she wrote the Buffy verse book called Slayer. Um, she's a regular on the podcast and she hosted the last episode and she always says that in season six, that's her biggest issue is that the Watchers should have had some kind of stipend for Slayers for like in case this happened because that they literally, they already do have a job. So like sitting Buffy down and being like, well, now you need to get a job. Is like, okay, but she also does have a job. So, like, don't pretend she's not
2: doing something very important. Part of the problem is that, it, you know, it's supposed to be a larger metaphor for feeling adrift in your early 20s. Yeah. And a lot of people can relate to this thing of, having a shitty relationship, drifting into right. depression, being kind of this weird mixture of responsible and irresponsible and unsure what your purpose is. But it is true that when placed into this context, you are faced with the fact that she is, in fact, saving the world, <laughs> like has yeah. literally died, had her <laughs> mother die. Like it's not a normal type of um, a drift 21-year-old circumstance. So it's, right. it's not as easily
0: applicable to the metaphor as some of the earlier periods on the show. Yeah. Like and yeah. just on top, like just putting it in that context, and then having someone like Giles or Xander just like kind of tut tut her and be like, "Well, you should be like the rest of us and get that get that job." Um, it just is. It just it, it. Buffy isn't quite on the same level as uh, Andy and Devil Wars Prada, where I just wish she had just a whole brand new set of friends to play. category. <laughs> like cause as much as I love Willow and everybody, like I'm just like. God, maybe she would be much more thriving if she had just a completely different crew.
2: Before we get to to the part where we start praising things, because I really do think this is a great, especially the last two thirds are just so sharp, have so many funny lines, some of the best slapstick ever and good performances by a bunch of people. I would like to throw in one completely shallow random complaint that when Buffy is on campus and then she gets freaked out and is looking for that sensor on her, she rips off her top and she, what is she wearing? <laughs> I love that outfit.
0: <laughs> I was going to say that seems like Ian's uh favorite outfit. Uh, yeah. this is going to be the favorite outfit of the episode. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Very extreme choice for a sociology class. <laughs> well, that goes into yeah. like you know the the sort of like ren fair dress that Tara ends up wearing in once more with feeling <laughs> like
1: <laughs> I I think that corset, I mean, I might also, yeah, I was wondering, I was like, is that a corset or just like cut
2: like one? I was just saying, it, it looks like it's some kind of um, extreme lingerie or maybe she's preparing to do, um, what? Uh, what is it called when you do, not vaudeville. Um, burlesque. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like a modeling burlesque outfit rather than.
3: This is the like, late 1990s, early 2000s. And I, as being perhaps the age that Buffy was supposed to be at that time, may have wanted to wear something like that during
2: that. I re- I respect your expertise. <laughs> there is one great outfit in this episode, but it's Anya's outfit in the, in the store is just an amazing dress with the braids. She looks great. She does look
1: great. We will we're getting ahead of ourselves, Emily. Sorry, right. sorry. Um, the uh, things I wanted to make note of Oh, the speed thing doesn't quite make sense. Because either Buffy's just not there and time is speeding up like and Willow and Tara just don't see her or she's just like I don't under is she just standing there and they're leaving her I think
0: to other people they must see a like a woman standing in, in one place so I don't know why everyone's hitting her
1: right and like <laughs> why Willow and Tara wouldn't be panicking like oh shit Buffy's just standing there doing nothing What's going on? Like, Are they
3: so absorbed with the fact that they are (laughs) college students that need to get to that art history class that they're not even concerned about the fact that she like is stuck in time? I
2: think you sort of have to just take it as a a general thing for her friends are self-absorbed and they're not paying attention to her crisis. But it's weird. I was
3: very glad later when they were doing the monitoring of the time loop that they kind of explained briefly in one line that they... Andrew kind of explained something that made it yes. seem like they're allowed to watch the things happening to Buffy in Buffy's time. Because I was like, how can they see what's happening if time is going by in this way? But then they, they had that one line throwaway. <laughs> and also I wanted, I wanted to reference that uh, in my notes, I did not call them the trio. When they first appear in that van, I said, these three idiots. And then <laughs> for the rest of the time, referred to them as the idiots in my notes well
0: they what's, don't they love being called the tr- the troika the tri- or something yeah, the, trio. the yeah. trio yeah the trio at the okay, end of
2: the episode a... they call themselves the trio mm-hmm. is that okay, the first time go. or did they do it before
1: i think that's the first time i think because there's only they were only in one other episode and the other episode they were like barely in it mm. but so then we get the uh construction site scene which i kind of like i I feel like the, like, sexism is almost, like, too on the nose. It is
2: pretty blunt.
0: <laughs> like, I don't know. if It is. It is from everybody else. And then, like, the more real-life kind of subtle sexism at play here is Xander just being, like, well, everybody hates you, so you got to go. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Sorry. Frankly, I, oh, I agree. I privately just sort of like I'm with you and whatever, but you know, just you know, gotta 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 <laughs> catch you publicly. It. I have to fire you. Yeah.
3: I feel like if there was one less misogynistic thing that happened so overtly, it could have been slightly not better because it's not a matter of that, right. but maybe more believable. But then right. when the guys refused to admit that Buffy saved them at the end, I was like, too much. Like We get it. Toxic masculinity. We understood. But maybe for the time period we didn't and we needed that extra bang. I'm not sure. That's true. I mean, I
2: think that that was, I I mean, the larger point of it, which I can get, is that she's super strong and it seems like her her, uh, strength would come in handy for tasks like this, but she's perceived as a freak and people are too hostile because she's a girl. If right. she was a guy, they'd sort of welcome her doing it. I mean, but you're right. It's just so blunt. I did like that they called her Bridget, Gidget, and Princess.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was it was interesting that nobody tried to flirt with her, actually. Um, there's yeah. There's this, like, screw you.
3: Well, the one guy is kind of like, oh, I did that just to, you know, I was being nice to you. But then once she picks up the the beam. He's like, "Oh hell no!" So that could yeah. have maybe led to flirting, and then her super strength scared him away. Yeah, I do.
1: I do like her picking up the beam, though. That for me, that's like it's a great bit. That's very Buffy, right? Where people are like, "Oh, you're not gonna be able," to, and then she just is like, "All right, we're gonna right. right put this," and it's a well, giant ass beam. She, she
0: like, you know, like it's all those times where she like she rips the phone off the wall or whatever, or yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> she just like breaks the door handle off, you know, just like the casual, <laughs> the casual stuff is always just. It's, it works every time. And
3: and to, to her detriment, because they're like, oh, well, you know, we get paid yeah. by the hour. So what, what should be something good is then, like, classed bad then.
1: Also, it felt like a Wile e. Coyote scenario here where it's like, okay, but Buffy could be good. Like, it felt like a construction job would be way better for Buffy than a fast food job. Right. Like I know I know she got fired from this one but it was like no but I felt like she was a good fit. She would it's clearly for her like easier cuz she's so strong and like maybe find a better con- like okay, got fired from this one but for me I was like this is a better job than Double Meat Palace and it probably pays better.
2: I have to say, Andrew's scheme, I mean, I guess what they're trying to do is test her and see what her strength is and everything, but it was such a was such a boring attack. It was just right? like, I will send a bunch of demons who she's already proven that she can beat and she will melt them. I mean, I realized right. that their premise was we're trying to collect data and see how long it takes to do it, but just there was nothing <laughs> clever about right? it. I guess that's what he does is he, he causes demons to arise. But.
1: Yeah, because... Like, we've, she's been fighting demons professionally for six years now, so, like, at this point, that's a nothing issue.
0: Well, it's just, it's one of those things where, like, the other two just sort of bend reality, and that's really more the test, and, you know, it's, you know, Andrew could have summoned, like, a reality kind of affecting demon, like, um... yeah.
1: You know, like we like we, like we see. Red.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like you know, like so, the like the singing demon, or the or the one you know yeah. later on, you know, or when uh you know, Hellfreak, when no one can lead the party. Like, like there's the, demons that do sort of like really mess with your mind, other than just like here's a goofy guy in a suit and he's gonna <laughs> and like it's like well, clearly <laughs> she's gonna be fine.
2: I think <laughs> it's the weird thing about this episode, and it's why everything before um it gets to the magic shop. Is has amusing moments and uh, but doesn't really read to me. Is that you can kind of see the outlines of the episode in it. You know, in the first one, she finds school doesn't work for her, in the second one, she finds that this construction job doesn't work for her. And it's only once they get into the magic shop and all the other things that it stops just being a sketch of her coming to the conclusion that she doesn't fit in anywhere and she's feeling. You know, destabilized, yeah. and so Spike can really say, "You're a creature of darkness. Come be with me, you know? <laughs> like, like, So, so it just feels like the first two are kind of check marks, and the third yeah. one, they just like nail it because it just is filled with lines and characterization and all the stuff that you normally expect of the show.
1: Yeah. Yes. Um, before we before we get there, because I that, that is also my favorite, like of the three trials. Uh, I know we kind of touched upon this, but boy, Xander really pissed me off. And I usually give him some slack, but when he's like, "That's your job, not at my job," as if she did anything wrong. Um, but then he does like immediately say he believes her. Yeah, which is so annoying. I'm like, but you yelled at her in front of your coworkers.
0: Uh, again, he talks yeah. like I-, <laughs> um,
1: I do appreciate the like how in the beginning we saw Andrew painting the Death Star and then it's like he covers it up but then when he hits the horn it's all the star wars theme. It was very funny. It's like such a dumb bit but it really like landed for me.
3: I really like how the just briefly about the trio. I like how their references go from stuff that people would definitely like most people know star wars and even if you yeah. don't know which, you know, they're like they're like, "Oh, I'm painting the death star in this episode, not there, right. like, you know, this movie, not this other film." Um even if you don't get that exact reference, like you know the kind of people who do yeah, right. and then later yeah. they're talking about the, I think it's in the next scene that we're about to get to. where in they're in the van talking about I think James Bond, yeah, it took me yeah, a little yeah. while to realize what they were talking about. But it occurred to me that there are probably people watching the show who knew exactly what they were talking about. And that was a really good way to just know their audience. So you either mm. you know who those people are. Like you know these three guys or you you are those three guys, and you're you're really familiar with yeah. them. So I, I liked that, you know, it left room for both of those audiences to uh, yeah. sort of find their way into the show.
0: I mean, they, they do so much. I mean, they in the in the time loop, they they're they're making Monty Python jokes, they're doing the parrot sketch.
2: And it gets increasingly dense with references, gags, visual stuff and character stuff so that you actually feel like each little segment you watch is rich with stuff when you rewatch it. Um, yeah. but, I don't know, it's satisfying.
1: And Kim, I am that, I knew, I do know all the references they made. (laughs) I am that nerd. Um, Yeah, okay, so we can move on to the magic shop, which also she, I really like that in the beginning of the construction site sketch, she says, thank you, I I was able to turn down Giles' offer to work at the magic shop because you hired me here, because, oh, retail, I'd rather be dead again. Yeah. I feel like that's a good (laughs) line. And then we see her, she is in retail, and she is like, Right, this is like the worst one. I mean, the best one, but for her, the worst one.
3: Oh yeah, I I recalled that line as well. When with there's like no transition, it's like, and then we're in the magic store. Yeah, (laughs) that's how that works.
2: I loved I loved Anya's advice to her about don't be nervous, just do what I do. Picture yourself naked. Yourself naked. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) the most Anya thing ever.
1: (laughs) I mean, Anya's always. It's weird because this episode doesn't, we don't, we don't get a lot of the other, like Dom's only, only has like two lines in this episode. Anya's really only in this scene. Uh, Xander's only in the construction site scene. I, but Anya always stands out. I feel like Emma Crawfield's delivery and Jana Benson always writes Anya really well.
0: Yes. It's, it's, it's definitely like a great character, actor, writer pairing this yeah. whole this yeah. whole part. Um, and it brings out the best in Buffy, too. Like, it really brings out um, Sarah Michelle Geller's very natural comedic talents, which we so rarely get to see. Um, especially yeah. as Buffy goes on um, into later seasons.
1: I feel like this Magic Box scene it could have been an extended episode of, she works at the Magic Box for one whole episode, and I would have watched that. I, yeah. Like, yeah, I witches do. and warlocks <laughs> and demons coming into shop, and her having to, like, deal with like shitty customer service things while also like helping someone who's a witch right like i think that would have been absolutely enjoyable to watch like i, I get what they did here and they needed her to quit but i think this is also enjoyable i would have liked an episode or two of her uh, just like right it's like for me that's infinitely more interesting than
0: double meat palace I, it's so i would i would I if i just i, I like the one meat thing meat i could palace. change it would be swap out double meat palace for no like, a, a, a an arc? No, no. That's,
1: that's <laughs> the other episode Emily likes in season six.
2: Oh god! Double Meet Palace has to do. I mean, to, I, I, I <laughs> this is a separate subject, and I'd have to rewatch Double meat Palace. But Double Meet Palace has to do also is that is that where Riley comes back, or he does the next episode, and she's yeah. still working there. It's crucial for that. But yeah, I mean. Double Meat Palace is a little on the nose. Double Meat Palace has a penis as the villain. But I do think it captures something about working in retail in a different way. So I would not erase it. Um, but, but that's neither that's here nor there.
0: Um, I think Double Meat Palace is really only important to the Riley story in that uh, Buffy needs to like literally feel gross when she yeah. meets. Uh, him and his fiancée like she has to like and the burger stench to like... in her hair and be greasy in the, the awful costume that she has yeah. to wear
1: but so yeah adam you touched upon what i wanted i was gonna say sam geller's comedic timing in this whole bit is uh. so good and her like increasing increasingly like annoyed <laughs> state of being where it's just like She's not even scared. She's just like fucking frustrated. Well, she right? just like <laughs> lunges
0: at a customer. It's like you're doing this. Like it's uh, <laughs> it's it's the um like so many gifts are from this episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the well, there's the you know her crying one and in the shop and then even later there's the her taking the shot. Yeah. And the gross-out yeah. face. It's just a lot of just good like Buffy being broad comedy. Awesome.
1: Well, so Kim and I both worked at Barnes and Noble during the Oprah's book club phase, and when Buffy, I think it's the second or third loop, when she just points at the lady and goes, "Mummy hand, you, that lady," <laughs> and she doesn't need the lady to say anything. That was like us working at Barnes and Noble when someone would come in for the Oprah book. Like we know that what they were going to ask for <laughs> before they said it. <laughs> Be like, "Oprah book, got oh, it. Man. Here it is."
3: <laughs> or when *The Secret* was oh, wildly man. popular. Oh, man. Like, hi, I'm looking for this book. It's yeah, on, like, I know this what secret. it is. It's fine. Yeah, so I, it's right here. I've got a couple behind the desk.
1: <laughs> but that's what that reminded me of, Kim. Like, us just being like, yeah, I know. You don't even, I know. I got it. Like, just shut up and <laughs> take the book. Yeah.
3: They're, like, spelling the author's name. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm got
0: it. That was me working at Barnes & Noble during the um, eat, pray, love phase of everyone's life. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs>
2: I worked as a waitress a lot and I've done other jobs. I worked as a secretary. But I never had to sell anybody um, either The Secret or a, a zombie hand. Um, actually, what was a mummy? A mummy hand. Slung <laughs> um, candles. make that dumb joke about it. it's a daddy hand. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I like about this episode also. I like a lot of episodes where they're not afraid to make a stupid joke because <laughs> it's just silly and, and, and funny. I love that the trio knows, uh, it, although it's weird they don't recognize i mean groundhog day had come out right when this was out so they 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 reference every repeated solve the problem plot on star trek and other shows like that they don't reference groundhog day Um, (laughs) sort of the way russian doll nobody has seen groundhog day nobody mentions that but
1: right yeah
2: (laughs) i like that they do have a quick conversation in which they reference every time anybody has ever been faced with like a problem they have to solve repeated times um, on a show. Uh,
1: yeah, I like them specifically saying, "Like I hope she solves it faster than Data did."
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, just all of this is just for me great. And I, I think re- revisiting it, I definitely thought this bit was longer than it is, right? Because it's so memorable. It's so
2: sharply edited. Like they really yeah, yeah. do that. And you know, that's the fun of this Groundhog Day thing is that you can do short ones, long ones. You know. Just the the whole thing of her just throwing the candle at that guy. <laughs> the, 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 it's like it's like a built in yes. thing where you get to do comedic callbacks, you know, like any kind of callback ends up being funny, and then this whole thing is just made up of a series of super fast callbacks.
0: Exactly, yeah. it's like a it's like a mouse trap where you just like you you just like you, all you have to do is just a very nice quick setup, and then you just get to keep paying that setup off over and over and over again.
2: Yeah. Also, visually. Visually, the mummy mummy hand is just genuinely funny to look at
0: <laughs> when it has the like arms.
1: I think that's a really good visual. <laughs> I feel like all of us are in agreement. Like, oh, this scene is really good. Like, no,
0: <laughs> like when I say, "Please let me do live cereal," I was thinking of this scene. So that's
2: the whole. I actually had forgotten that the hilarious kitten poker scene is even in the episode because I associated yeah. live cereal with this one yeah. sticky funny bit. Just because it's just because it's very pure. Um, it does what it does and you know Anya gets a bunch of funny little bits and even the solutions are a little bit clever like the finger sold separately idea not bad (laughs) not a bad idea (laughs) also this one is truly the one where yes they're messing with Buffy's head but because it's funny it does seem like the trio is doing something intensely low stakes where they're just running her through this loop it's not like she gets traumatized by it she's just annoyed (laughs) trying to figure it (laughs) out um she doesn't start to flip out so it's sort of the it's the pure essence of the of the episode and why it why it works as both a on its own and as a setup for their larger things that are not shenanigans but
1: and i think this feels this feels the most buffy to me this whole thing
2: mm.
1: episode in general does a better job than the previous ones of balancing oh the buffy that we love where we can laugh but also feel bad for her with the like bleak of like her just coming back to life and i don't think any of the other episodes
0: quite balanced it so well yeah because this one and once more with feeling are just sort of like i said these last sparks of lightness because something yeah. else in my research was that this is you know because I, I this i did not watch the season live but um you know this is the this this is the night this is this is the 9-11 season every show kind of has a 9-11 season where things mm. just get darker. That was sort of the creative mandate after nine eleven. was just everything had to get. I don't, I don't know, know if that's the case. Nine <laughs> eleven mandate for shows that. No, I mean like, it just seems like, I, I remember just um, like at that time, this was sort of my first year in film and TV. Uh, and it just was the sort of thing where not everything had to get darker. It just felt like everything that was sort of fun or fluffy, felt um superfluous at that time. I,
2: okay it, I'm, I'm just i'm just saying that this season began october 2nd 2001 so that's just not possible right right i'm sorry i'm sorry to be obstinate about it but i just
0: like no i mean i mean this i mean that's just that's sort of the the this is something that i kind of felt um about several shows where i'm because i always just wonder like Buffy in the last two seasons, why things just really, you know, they they did feel so, you know, severe like that, and I just remember that being sort of the tone, at least in my film school at that at that time, uh, where mm, yeah. that was like we kept trying to do comedic things and were shut down because a lot of people just felt it was either not inappropriate, but just um, it right. did not I- it, everything felt too superfluous, and so I I kind of always like mentally tied in that time. But they clearly shot this beforehand and they were already on their darker path. So that is a little off base for me to say. But I always just, I think, in my mind, group those things together.
2: No, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I'm not saying that I, I actually do group some Buffy things together with that period, and I agree with you that people were like, irony is dead and there was a real chaotic feeling in the whole country in terms of how to represent this in art. It's just it, it Buffy's a weird show where there are things in the show that always replicated things in the culture, but didn't weren't literally influenced by them. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, but falling off the tower and the gift feels mm. that way. Um, yeah. And earshot was canceled because of Columbine. Like there's just the, the show, you know, I think that happens with a lot of popular art is that there are images that weren't necessarily filmed in response to something. But I, I, I basically think, you know, season six, the show had been on for several years and, they, they clearly wanted to head in a sort of comic book way into this darker, kinkier more damaged aspect of it i think I, I i always see some of that as having been i know poor marty knoxon always feels so blamed for this because she was yeah. in charge of buffy during this period and maybe she did have some elements of like wanting to write about her experiences in her early 20s but she's always been too blamed for it because clearly joss was on board for that like it was a right. group decision but it does make sense to me for um a comic book about uh coming of age to start Sort of diving into the darkness, but I know for a lot of people, this whole season feels so curdled because of it. And it's true yeah. that an episode like this gives a glance at something else. But I will say, I mean, doesn't I haven't watched it in a long time, but doesn't Tabula Rasa have some funny stuff in it too? It does. Yeah,
1: I think. But yeah, this and once more, failing and Tabula Rasa are like the only three like yeah. funny episodes. I think also.
0: I think also probably what what myself and probably a lot of others are kind of dealing with is that. If you look at each episode, you know, one at a time, yeah, there's, there's like funny stuff in there. I think there's the main, when you just sort of are asked to remember season six, you're just so yeah. like, you remember th- the, the, obviously the ending. You remember like, you know, dead things where he yeah. has his girlfriend, you know, like these really yeah, yeah. are smashed, wrecked and gone where there's like a, where it just Willow is a mess. Right. And you yeah. know, and there's really hard stuff that that Willow and Buffy go through. So I think those things are just so um, dire, and, and like more dire in than they I don't know, they they feel more dire than even say like killing Jenny Callender, which felt more like part of a, oh, a story. Yeah. Like it just it feels feel like oh yeah yeah. So I think when I think oh. of season six, I think of those things.
2: There are a lot of things in season six that I can uh, that I would defend somewhat uh, as. As elements of it, but also a little bit in the abstract. Like stuff like killing his girlfriend is, to me, one of the things I love about season six is that it takes the repercussions of the trio's behavior seriously. It's why Life Serial is such an important episode in the larger season because it trains you to feel collusive with their actions because you see them as funny now and you, yeah and you're you're attached to their own self-image of themselves as sort of nerdy pranksters who are into pop culture and all that kind of stuff so when they do that later stuff it's meaningful to see consent violated and um real violence committed by them in a way that's not a cathartic comic book joke that's a real thing so i do think that some of that stuff works and there are parts of it that are defend but it is so and and I, tr- the trio is one of my absolute favorite villains on the show, which is part of the reason I love this episode. But it's true that when when you ever try to talk to somebody about season six, you're forced to talk about it not on an episode by episode level, but on a but on this aspect of like defending larger themes and its rich treatment of sexual violence and stuff like that. It's not <laughs> it's not a fun way to talk about the show. There's something a right. little poisoned, and that, you know there are parts of it like the Willow thing that just have their problems but they don't even come up in this episode like willow and tara at this point are just sitting around making yummy jokes like (laughs) sorry that was a long monologue defending the role of this within the larger season but yeah
0: i mean no i think season six needs defending because you know this stuff is you know the more i go back and look at it it is good i think it's definitely it's on, on a quality level like it is still so good. Like And there are other
2: episodes that are very good. Normal again is very good. Like, you know, like there there, there are good episodes, but yeah, I think it's depressing to talk about.
0: <laughs> That's hard. It's that I think it's that because so much of Buffy is just very exciting and um a little escapist to kind of talk about and is maybe a little more digestible even when they're talking about big themes. But this is really one where, you know, and I think, you know, probably to, to Marty Knoxon's credit, like you're not let off the hook. Like with the, with the, with an an ending that like kind of makes it feel like, Ooh, this was a big metaphor. Like, you're just like, know that she died in this very, very awful way. Like it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, you're, you're not left with the, with the ice cream part. You just get the medicine. Yep.
3: Do you think that the, just one more last note about the season, um, do you think that the writers knew that their audience was growing up? And that, because I always wonder this about like the Harry Potter books, because they sort of like age, I think, with like their audience in some way. So I I never really thought about Buffy in that way. But six seasons—that's a long time. So if you started watching this as a, you know, fifteen-year-old, and then you're twenty-one, I don't know if it actually—if they came out sequentially by year, because sometimes seasons do weird things. But I wonder if the writers had that in mind. They were like, "Well, we can go a little darker now because people that were fifteen are now a lot older watching this, and you know, maybe." need or want it to be,
2: you know, I I have to, to, that's an interesting idea. I see it in a totally different way because I did not watch this as a teenager. I was a fan of the show as an adult and I always perceived it not as a teen show, but as having multiple audiences, but not really in certain ways intended for teenagers. Um, I mean, I know it was also intended for teenagers and it was the beginning of this big issue about ambitious television shows that had doubled audiences. I see it less as they knew that the individual teenagers who watched their show were growing up than that. The writers themselves probably felt somewhat constrained by the question of whether they could deal with, you know, death and sexual violence and addiction and things that they kind of wanted to get into in just the desire of writers to write about extreme and gory things. Um, I mean, I, I just, I, I, you'd have to ask them. I'm curious whether there was a sense of that, but uh, like, it's funny because there are a lot of shows that I like that some people watch as teenagers and I watched as an adult and we always have a slightly different perception of it. Like I'm perpetually shocked that people watch sex in the city as a teenager. It seems radically (laughs) inappropriate. It's not how I perceived it, but you're the same age as Buffy and I'm the same age as Carrie Bradshaw. So it affects, you know, it affects how you see the show yeah
1: yeah it's well it's, yeah it's funny in high school uh uh one of me and kim's other good friends she was obsessed with sex in the city and i was obsessed with buffy and like <laughs> i only knew about sex in the city through that friend and she only knew about buffy through me mm. but like you know also back then there wasn't much else to do so we would watch i would watch it with her because it was her favorite show but only because she liked it. and she would watch buffy with me only because it was my favorite that's, show and like,
2: it's very sweet
1: <laughs> what the hell is he doing at like 18 or 19 in like 2001
3: pre twitter
2: <laughs> yeah twitter didn't exist. there was nothing to be done but one <laughs> other thing i'd add about season six is well first of all season six is when they change networks right okay the other thing is there is a part uh, i love all of buffy there are episodes in season seven i think are good and i think season seven is by far the weakest season of the show but um there is an argument and i think this is true of a lot of shows where five seasons works on Buffy. The ending of the show is a Christ-like self-sacrifice combined with a suicide. Like it's a weird, weirdly powerful ending. It actually ends the show. So season six and season seven, it doesn't surprise me that they would come out of other creative impulses because they were essentially an attempt to continue a show that had already reached its natural conclusion. That doesn't Mm. mean they're not good. They are good. But I almost feel like they're a different show because they had this huge transition, I don't even remember when, when did Angel start? And, you know, I wrote about Joss Whedon when Firefly was going on and they, the the situation was just flooded and overwhelmed because Mutant Enemy was trying to produce three shows at once. Um, now that seems like nothing because they are all these showrunners right. <laughs> who produce like 20 shows. But I, I do think that there are probably systemic things that contributed to you know, the themes and goals and idea of the show um, that aren't necessarily connected to the audience, but connected to the people making it. Hmm. I
0: For sure. I, I
1: actually could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, Kim, I I, I do compare it to Harry Potter with the... Grown, I mean, know everyone's exhausted with Harry Potter metaphors, but I do that way compare it to like, oh, well, only because the characters themselves were... Like we weren't in a 90210 situation where they were just in high school mm-hmm. indefinitely. And... You know, like the show while about demons and a hell mouth and vampires still had that realistic element, right? It wasn't just gonna have them be in high school for seven right. seasons. So like they A little
3: had- too realistic with Buffy having to get these jobs, <laughs> but we talked about that yeah. earlier. Can you yeah.
0: I think like we talk about this um in the in the young adult book community as well, where People, young readers who were really around during this, the sort of inception of of big why lit like you know Twilight and Hunger Games et cetera like in the sort of the beginning of the decade are now in you know college and beyond, and there seems to be like there's talk right now of like should we have there really is no genre for there's like adult and then there's young adult which is sort of high school and and younger. Um, there's kind of talk right now of like should there be books that are more set in college time, because a lot of these readers are looking for stories that are about what they are going through. You know, we are having a huge readership that's kind of aging out of high school stories and, you know, are, is there sort of a big unmet need there? And Kim, I think, you know, that I think that's, you know, I think for people who were in high school, when uh, Buffy was going on, like going into these new territories is sort of, the audience some, some of the audience um aging along with it
1: and i i mean i remember reading the last harry potter and being like shook when molly called uh bellatrix a bitch so i remember being like oh, and this is a kid's book but then i remember like jk saying like oh well i thought of it as my audience was growing and i do think of that with this but i also think what emily said is true too you know it is a very clear different i don't know like different network like willow makes a a joke about the way the like chicken she's like i'm a breast gal myself but you knew that and i think they would have never been able to make that joke on the wb at the time like they weren't allowed to kiss until the body you know they sing while having sex in the musical they would have never been able to do that on i mean the WB. yeah
0: yeah i mean <laughs> that's definitely interesting i wonder like what um because i'm not as familiar with upn where they just Was it just the times changing or were they like a little more of a permissive network?
2: Emily, as a resident TV expert. I'm trying to remember because they blur together a bit for me. I mean, all of these are networks that went through these different stages and took advantage of audiences early on that they then abandoned. I mean, (laughs) you know, there's this whole thing about black sitcoms being on UPN and then them dropping them off. I I can't remember exactly what stage UPN was versus the WB. And honestly, things blur together for to me because I'm like UPN, the WB, the CW, <laughs> and ABC family, and it turned into Freeform. Like I don't know, I'm getting old, I'm losing my memory, and there are a lot of they, they, these. These, but but there's always been this phenomenon of these um, uh, smaller netlets. Like it's weird. The WB was called a netlet oh at the God. time. At one point. yeah, it was it's like, you know it was a stra- it was a strange transition. It was a transition in terms of what these. Um, smaller, smaller cable networks that could put ambitious things on, but things that were also perceived as junk and were perceived as juvenile. And, and, and yet that, that space that they were working with, they could do a certain amount of ambitious things. So it's funny. Yeah. The rules about the gay stuff on the show are so frustrating and crazy, (laughs) but it was an enormous breakthrough. There were, there has been stuff on the air before where people, I mean, th- th- like these 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 issues recur over and over again about whether people can kiss and stuff like that. It's right. nothing new. There were rules obviously within there that determined what they could do, and at season six, were the writers champing at the bit to do kinky stuff? Clearly, yes, from <laughs> <Yeah. seeing laughs> <you know. laughs> But, but again. Not putting it all on Marty, but like there was this desire to show people in their early 20s. And this isn't about the audience this is about the characters, like the characters are in their early 20s yeah. in a way that was not only not um, sort of uh, watered down and made sugary and bland, but that also really dived into some of the more screwed up ways that people behave when they're kind of spinning out of control. Because, you know, Buffy's entire relationship with Spike on this season is to me as kinky dark complicated worthy of debate as anything else that happens on the season it's a mutually abusive relationship yeah yeah. you know he's abusive to her she beats the crap out of him like it's a very violent sexually violent season um it's so weird because when you watch this episode which is five episodes in you really would not necessarily see that it's going to those places but if it has trouble mixing those tones, I really admire the ambition of it because, of course, that's true for people in their early 20s. Yeah. yeah. Like, not like that's not true. Like, they were trying to represent metaphorically a state of depression and self destruction that's a real thing. And I think a lot of the writers related to whether it worked is really up to viewers. And I think some things just work better yeah. than others.
0: I, I wonder, Emily, if, like, you know, like how you said, sort of, this sort of funny stuff in life serial is sort of the like way the audience gets sort of tricked to sort of be like complicit with the trio early on. I wonder if this sort of like, this is also sort of a funny beginning to Buffy and Spike where we sort of be like, all right, let's follow this. And then it it goes to a very bad place.
2: Yes, very much so. And honestly, the Buffy spike stuff in this episode, which is what's coming up in the, in the, it comes right afterwards. Is really wonderful. Like, like James, uh, I'm sorry, Marsden, right? Like, James Marster. Marster. I mix up their names always in my head. But he's so good in this episode and so warm and loving toward Buffy while still being this kind of doofus who she hilariously, what does she call him? She calls him. Oh, a neutered vampire. A neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker. Like, (laughs) you know, like a total skeezy loser in many ways but he, the way he looks at her when they're drinking together like there's a reason why people felt seriously that this was the central romance of the show yeah. and then it just goes to such messed up places but in this episode it's romantic Emily, like I mean Emily I'm so glad because the last few episodes
1: it's really weird they shoehorn it in at the end of the last few episodes where she just has these talks with Spike and I, I have been saying in every one of them that I am. I feel like a problem because I know what's coming. But in these episodes, I fall in love with him as well. He is absolutely tender with her. I think they both act well. They're both like, their acting chemistry is bananas. Oh, you know? yeah. He The tenderness he shows her, I'm like, oh, this man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All toxic relationships begin in a very wooing, yeah. effective place. And that's how you kind of get trapped in them sometimes.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's really quite powerful and I think, you know, realistic and effective on the show that he is tender toward her. He it, it, The show establishes that part of the reason she goes for him is she feels so isolated from everybody else. Right. Nobody understands the way she's feeling. He kind of does because he is also a self-loathing, self-punishing right. creature of darkness person. But also her friends have kind of let her down she doesn't feel understood by them. And she kind of drifts into this messed up bad boundaries dynamic, but yeah, they have chemistry. He is funny. Like he is like, it makes the later stuff feel much more potent and, and tragic and interesting than it would, if it was simply like, if the season was called Buffy makes bad choices, Like, (laughs) then it would just be pedantic this way. It actually has, it has a real, it has a real meaningful erotics that matches a lot with the, with the complicated sexual stuff that the show does about Buffy a lot, because Buffy is a kinky person who does not vibe well with um, being with the otherwise, to my mind, wonderful Riley. Like she's not, she's not a sexual, uh, this is a separate subject. (laughs) She's not a sexual match for him. She gets up in the middle of the night and goes cravings taking vampires. But, But Spike is a sexual match for her. And in this episode, you can see that he's also in many ways, like a friendship and romantic match which is why their treatment of each other ends up feeling so much more hideous
1: well and it's funny because we had james marsters on for season five and he said that he the way he did it was that he always portrayed spike as actually loving someone as actually like almost having a soul um and he always felt that spike didn't deserve buffy um, yeah, and he always went into that like all their scenes with Spike knowing he doesn't deserve her, but that he wanted her and I thought that was like a very I, I don't know, that was like a very specific thing for him to think of and I I like that. I don't know, I appreciated
2: that like kind of thinking. But it's so interesting that he says that he didn't deserve Buffy because yeah. I'm always struck by the fact that people let Buffy off the hook for her treatment of him yes. because it goes both ways and it's true. He plays it like a courtly knight. yeah. Like he plays it like she's his lady. And she's beyond him. But that's, you know, I mean, Buffy's a messed up person too. Yeah, especially Um, in season six. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so do we want to talk about the kitten poker scene?
1: Because I love it. It works for me. So funny. I also appreciate, I think this is the first time on the show we've seen someone get drunk without there being like a lesson that they have to learn. Yeah. Which I appreciate. (laughs) Because while Emily, you and I both defend beer bad, it still is like the lesson of the episode is don't drink, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's
2: especially don't drink with those guys. Yeah, here it's like things are going badly. A little whiskey couldn't right. hurt. Yeah,
0: right. Beer bad is literally like one mild beer is a, a curse. Like it's just weird. <laughs> it's it does. so
2: weird. I mean, again, like I think that the beer bad thing is about like don't go to college and literally just block out everything in your life by just drinking really shitty beer with douchebags at a college bar (laughs) like that's reasonable reasonable advice but um (laughs) um but in this but in this i love her uh whiskey uh drinking uh sound that she made (laughs) yeah so genuinely funny
1: yeah like you said earlier out her comedic timing is really good i mean like she has the range right like 100 (laughs) she does the She does comedy stuff. She does, you know, the, like, toughened superhero stuff. And then she does, you know, her cruel intentions bit, which also works. Yes.
2: Her bad girls thing.
3: She's still not drunk enough, though in the episode to know that kitten poker is bad and what she really wants is information about what the heck is happening to her. Right. Like She's still she still got like this moralistic sense. Like I'm not going to defend your right to play kitten poker. I just need to know what the heck is happening to me cuz it's not normal.
2: Didn't it make you want to play kitten poker though?
3: <laughs> I'm allergic to cats.
2: That would hurt your game. Yeah. I we also meet Clem
1: here who, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like And I feel like lots of times in this show, they just really liked the actor because here he's really just a throwaway demon. Mm. And, you know, by the end of the season, he's, like, babysitting gone. Yeah. So I feel like they probably just really liked that act.
0: Yeah, he's sort of like what Jonathan used to be to the earlier seasons, and now that they've, like, darkened Jonathan, they needed a new Jonathan. So he's like Jonathan the demon. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she lets the kittens go. I do love shitty, drunk Buffy. Like, her just, like... She's, like, making fun of what they're doing, even though, like you said, Kim, she's there to, like, get information, but she's just being shitty. Also, drunk Buffy, Kim, reminded me of you. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Reminded me of you when you're drunk. But she's like, also, I think you're drunk. And then, like, does her, like, drunk walk. All right, that's
3: fair,
0: actually. <laughs> this is definitely Buffy at her most, Jessica Jones.
1: <laughs> I, Kim, I feel like that's us, like, <laughs> drunk at Stonewall in, like, five years ago. Someplace. <laughs> The nerds fighting over James Bond. I put. I know we have talked about this. I put. I really like the nerds fighting over James Bond, but also it feels exhausting. See, I I I, I loved it because I love that they
2: <laughs> they get into an actual physical fight. Like this is so derailed. I feel like this is probably like a a fan fiction <laughs> subtweet of the writers themselves getting into this kind of stupid <laughs> argument right <laughs> waiting for you to kill time yeah although the nerds the trio don't talk about which one is the hottest bond particularly the way my approach to bond <laughs>
0: um,
2: but I, I actually like the little um hat tip to uh andrew's gayness that they have yes. in here.
0: yeah a couple of a couple of times like they just like hang it mm-hmm. Well, cause they kind of like, yeah, they kind of position, um, what I like that they do with the, tr- with the trio is they never go for like the obvious gay jokes no. that all of them being so kind of close and lonely together is that you definitely have this sort of thing where all of them are in the trio for different reasons. And Andrews is, you know, obviously a lot more about him being closeted. And then like we said earlier in the episode, like, Jonathan sort of rides this sort of like line between Warren and Andrew in in that respect and yeah. so it's it's always interesting i want to like rewatch this whole season and and a little bit of 7 where and see how um how i probably feel about where Jonathan lies on that on that side
2: Yeah Jonathan's motives are are pretty complicated cuz Andrew is both um a closeted guy who overcompensates by saying you know Jillian Anderson wants me real bad or
0: whatever <laughs> Which I, which I said in high school. So there you go.
2: I thought it was kind of an interesting touch that uh, Warren, who's this big misogynist, like his take on it is, you know what homophobia means, you know, like the, he knows yeah. enough to think homophobia is bad, but it's his way of making a gay joke at Andrew's expense. It's like, yeah, he, it's like a strange doubleness to it. It's like he accuses him of being homophobic, therefore gay. Um, yeah. So I, I like little aspects like that. I also loved how, seething Warren is compared to the other two just indicates how much more invested he is Mm -hmm. in this particular fantasy. And they're all obsessed like fans because they're all fans of Buffy. Like that's, they're all obsessed with these, like you brushed her, you touched her, you know, Like these little things. I mean, it's very creepy, but it is interesting to see the slightly different ways.
3: That's funny that you put it that they're all fans of Buffy because I had written down a quote earlier when we were in the magic shop, not to back us up, but just Andrew's talking about like all the different things she's been doing. And I was trying to figure out why this stuck out to me so much. And it's because he's almost analyzing her like he's like a TV critic rather than uh, actually like, you know, a person who is on the show. So the line I wrote down was, uh, he's talking about like, well, she was a co- like, what's going on with her? Like, she was a college student, she was a construction worker, and he says now she's some kind of selling stuff person, which is hilarious because <laughs> there's obviously a word for this, which is retail, but he just doesn't know that. And then it's like, uh, um, Jonathan's like, yeah, it's like she's lost all focus, and rather than being, you know, characters in the show, they're like analyzing Buffy like as a character.
2: I have to say, when I heard that line, I had this brief, perhaps uncharitable flash where I thought maybe they were worried that they'd lost focus on the show. You know, like maybe it was a sort of a meta commentary on the writers. Because sometimes there's this thing that TV writers do where they sort of hang a lamp on saying, you know, this plot makes no sense or this character has lost focus. And so I, I do think it works as a line, but it also made me wonder whether they were worried about the space the, their character was in that's, on the show. Cause he definitely reacts like a TV critic, but he also yeah, reacts like a writer. Yeah, that's
0: likely because mm-hmm. I mean this, you know, there, like you said before, like there were challenges going into this sixth and seventh final season um, where the show had kind of tied up a lot of its loose ends already. And this was sort of like, all right, find a new way. And so a lot of them were probably like in the, in the plotting out process, feeling this <laughs> How do you dramatize somebody who's
2: lost and feeling paralyzed? Like how do you make that dramatic for the audience? But it is interesting because at the beginning of the episode, the tree or the whole thing is they're like, she's a superpowered; She can do anything. So we're going to like test her out almost like a, a video game character to see, you know, what's her level of charisma. What's her level, you know, like they're just, they're looking for weaknesses, but they're treating her not like a person, but like a, um, I don't know how to describe it. Like a, just a force of action who can do certain things and who has no vulnerabilities um so they're manipulating her that but yeah when they get to that point they're like wait i don't understand this superhero yeah <laughs> who's like this foggy weirdo <laughs> well
1: because also they don't know that she died and came back to life right, right. yeah mm-hmm. so to them they don't that's i mean i don't think that would even me- show up anyway because they're so like dumb but They don't know that, so there's not even that part of them that's like, oh, also she's like, you know, going through this, like, processing her trauma, so let's test her. They're just like, oh, she's a slayer, let's test her. Yeah. They view her... I mean, like I said, in the last episodes, uh, our guest David Vasquez said they would absolutely be leaving negative reviews of Captain Marvel without having seen it, and I just... That's them, right? Yeah, <laughs> they forget that there are people, and they forget that the Slayer is a person as well as a superhero.
0: Honestly, these yeah. three are every bad thing the internet is doing right now. It's it's <laughs> like they're sharing the Trump. Putin gay (laughs) memes like they're doing all that just real. Wait a
2: second, I hate the trio, but they would not be pro-Trump other than Warren. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what are the politics of the trio? I I think it'd be a little different than Trump.
0: No, Um, no, they would no, they would be sharing the like, like the like they would be sharing kind of like the anti-Trump memes where it's like, oh, oh. he's gay and with Putin and everything like that.
2: Oh no, yeah, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> they definitely, they would definitely be part. I mean, it's true that they specifically do seem representative of online fan bases in, I mean, part of what I appreciate is that they're not cartoons of like a nerd in a basement who's, you know, <laughs> right. and sits and is resentful. Like, it's not a cartoon thing. It's they have specific feelings, specific insecurities, and specific reasons that they react this way. I mean, even Warren, I mean, if I recall correctly, like he was really in love with Christina, right? Like, yeah, Katrina. Yeah. So it yeah, was yeah. like, you know, he is like and uh Jonathan felt small and powerless. Like that's his main thing. Right. Like, and we already knew that we that was
1: like established three seasons ago. I mean,
0: this is definitely a show written by nerds.
2: It, it it's true. Like there're all these sort of hideous uh, voices of of gamergate before it happened. But <laughs> but granular like, granular in their emotional understanding of people's motives. Yeah, I would
1: agree.
3: They cannot help but laugh about Jonathan's magic bone multiple times in this episode. And
2: I have to say, it's another one of the jokes. that's genuinely funny. <laughs> <laughs> Emily.
1: <laughs> and so, they go back. The van is there. Buffy recognizes the van. Jo- as they're fighting, Jonathan turns into... And I have to say, sometimes on the show it looks like they were like what do we have left in costumes apartment <laughs> throw it together and make a demon this like jonathan turns into like this weirdly very fully formed demon character <laughs> that's just like a cartoon it looks like satan from south park almost <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of love that it's like huge and bulking but still has jonathan's strength yes um i think that's a good guy <laughs> it's
2: He's really worried there. He thinks he's going to die of internal bleeding.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I like that Buffy's drunk and she misses when she punches him. I think that's a pretty good gag, too. Also, when he does a, this fake smoke bomb and just runs, when it cuts to <laughs> Buffy and Spike, James Marster is clearly still laughing. <laughs> <laughs> like he's like stopping laughing as he's blowing smoke out of his face yeah and i just i don't know i really like i mean that whole the whole spike and buffy having a night out works for me that i think that also could have been an episode like oh hey let's like have a bar crawl and then we show the gang at home being 100 percent like, buffy's depressed what are we
2: doing? Basically, huh. the bunch of us are just trying to rewrite Life Serial, so you really reduce the Xander <laughs> scene to almost nothing. We can make the, the on-campus scene just a throwaway to an entire thing that's about both the Spike the, the and Buffy of it and the uh, Groundhog Day thing. So.
1: Welcome, welcome to Emily, Adam, Ian, and Kimberly's uh, Buffy life serial fan fiction episode. <laughs> Such is the power. It's always
2: useful series. when people's responses are to like do an edit that's not possible on a show that already exists. <laughs> <laughs> I also,
1: I appreciate that we also see Buffy throwing up. I mean, not that we see it, but we know that that's what happened. And I'm like, okay, I appreciate a realistic drunk scene where it's like also she's already hungover, she's throwing up, she's miserable because that's what happens when you're that drunk. Yeah, I don't know. I I appreciated that. And then Giles being just
0: the nicest dad. Uh. Definitely. Like him coming in there with like the check at the end. It's, 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 at one point it's very like, oh, Giles, sweet. And and the other hand, it's like, you should have done this immediately.
2: (laughs) Didn't he go
1: away soon after this?
2: Yes.
0: I mean, it's a few episodes later.
1: Tabula Rasa is where he, because the next, the next episode is all the way, the Halloween one, then once more feeling, and then he leaves in Tabula Rasa, which is after that.
2: I literally, I, you know, I, I'm one of the world's biggest Buffy fans. I literally have no idea what happens in all the way. <laughs> there's like, the Halloween episode. It's, a, I, it's um, where Dawn falls in
0: love with that vampire guy in high school. Oh God! It has to do with his his uh, his jacket, right? Um, that's that's um him oh. in season seven. But like, there's the there's like a, it's such a throwaway. Like it's just Dawn focused. I literally have no idea what you're talking about. It's, <laughs> as,
2: though, it's as though I've had the mind wipe that, that, that <laughs> they, they keep giving people in the show. It's like, they're like one episode of Buffy has to completely go away. Apparently that's the one. Cause is- I remember this one pretty well. Like, um, Anyway, so yeah, so uh, but the thing is, when I watch that scene, as when when I'm watching the trio, this is the thing about revisiting a show. Is when I'm watching the trio, I'm thinking, wow, it's so interesting. It's light, but it also plants this really complex foreshadowing for how they're going to behave later. When Giles does that, I'm like, you jerk! <laughs> you're giving her a check, and you're about to abandon her. <laughs> it's
0: so true. Like it's and it's really because um, they they change up a lot in Tabula Rasa because they because Giles leaves and. Anne- yeah. yeah. And like, well, cause there's that, they, they, that Michelle branch song when well, they both leave and it's yeah. just so sad, but um, no, like they definitely kind of leave a lot of characters in even worse limbo after Tabula Rasa. Like they're kind of just around for the musical and then it's pretty much just the core, you yeah. know, three plus, you know, Dawn and um, Anya. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Being someone who did not remember that Giles necessarily left in season six uh, when she says at the end, like, oh, it makes me feel safe knowing you'll always be here for me. I was like, damn it. He's probably going to leave soon. So I thought the foreshadowing was a little heavy handed. I just wanted to throw that in there.
2: Yeah, it it definitely was a little on the nose, like in the same way that the the sexism in the earlier scenes. We don't respect women and their strength.
0: (laughs) It's, um, It's hard to track when Giles leaves because frankly that he was threatening to leave since season four like like the, yeah. <laughs> the character. there was a lot of like i think i'm leaving and i'm gonna go and then i'm done and then i'm just gonna stay for this last little bit and then i'm done and then in the beginning of season six he leaves and he's done and uh all that
1: i mean and i do think the middle uh, the middle of the season has a slump anyway but i think also it really is missing giles
0: uh, for sure
1: i think we're at the end aren't we adam yes
0: yeah, yeah. We yeah. were um you were leading us into Great. I think we were gonna we were gonna lead into the you know final thoughts and uh grades and all that.
3: All right, favorite outfit, Kim. Um Emily stole mine, she mentioned it earlier. It's it was hard. <laughs> Usually I feel like I find a favorite outfit in these episodes pretty easily. Um but yeah, it, it wasn't until Anya's outfit in the magic box that I was like, up oh, there we go, that's probably it. And it was.
1: Right, fair. Uh, Emily?
2: Yeah, I, I love that outfit, but I also specifically like that she's actually pulling off those little braids in her hair, they which do look doesn't really seem like an Anya thing. That seems like something that Tara would wear. Yeah. Um. But she actually is making them look good, which is very <laughs> impressive. That looks bad on most people.
0: Adam? I... Mine is uh, Buffy at the construction site. I love the little gidget, um, <laughs> little two big pigtails with the with the with the hard hat. I think it's just great. I'm
3: so glad you picked that, <laughs> by the way.
1: Um, I actually, this is the first episode also where I love. I actually love everything Buffy wears, but my favorite is also Emily's least favorite. I love the little, like weird corset thing with the cardigan with the number eight on it, which is like weird, and then the long necklace. I don't know, I think she looks great. But I also love the outfit she wears at the Magic Box. I love the outfit she wears post-Magic Box, which is, like, the same outfit, but with, ski- with jeans and a jean jacket instead of her skirt. Um,
0: and all her, of it. Her casual looks are just so great in the yeah. last few seasons. I mean, yeah. I mean, definitely season three, they had her in all the, like, you know, the pleather, leather, p- yes. leather, leather stuff.
2: I love Buffy, but I think the outfits that she wore in the magic box looked like something that like a, a woman in her mid thirties who'd just gone through a divorce would wear on a first date. <laughs> <laughs> very low, Randomly low cut top in a kind of slightly needy way.
0: <laughs> it, it has like, it has, it does add to the Buffy reads uh, slightly older than like 19.
1: Oh my God, Emily! When you said that, what's the Adam? What's the director that every gay loves on gay Twitter? Um, the woman that does all like the
0: Nicole Hollifield Center?
1: No, I want to say like Nancy. I want to say Nancy Downs, but that's the woman from The Craft. Uh, okay. That is yes. She did something's gotta give.
0: Oh, Nancy Myers. Nancy Myers. Nancy, so, yeah, yeah.
1: That was it. That was what first popped into my head. I was like, oh, the movies that all have Diane Lane or uh, Diane Keaton the- <laughs> or or both. <laughs> or both. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so favorite scene,
2: Emily? My favorite scene is actually the drinking between Buffy and Spike. I mean, it's actually not the funniest scene, but I just feel like the intimacy between them and the ebb and flow and the fact that it's broken up by these little weird sounds that she's making while drinking whiskey um, makes it work.
3: All right. Uh can... Yeah, I'm going to have to go with just Kitten Poker, specifically that part of the drinking, hmm. um from when like Spike sits down at the table to when Buffy sets all the kittens free.
0: <laughs> Adam. I mean, I know we were all about it already, but you know, just the 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 time loop the time loop section is just you can't beat it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm the time loop, but the close second would be the drinking with Spike cuz I mean this I... episode's that good that we can have <laughs>
0: I think I also I also really like um, the moment between Giles and Buffy at the end of the episode because I think it's just very cathartic. And it also, in the scope of the whole season, um, really uh, p- pushes Buffy out of her, um, like, is this hell sort of like fugue state. And, you know, she does start to feel a little more activated at the end of this trial.
1: Fair, fair. Yeah. Uh... Now we're going to grade it. Kim, what grade All do you give right, it?
3: All right, I'm giving it an 86.5, very specifically. <laughs> it is, a, is that
1: a B? Is that a B? It's a middle <laughs> B.
3: It's right before a B plus. <laughs> so basically, like that's like a, a, yeah, it's like you didn't quite do B-plus work, but you're like almost at B-plus.
1: Thank you, Professor Southwick. Um, Adam, what grade do you give the episode?
0: Um time loop and spike stuff get an a um everything else gets a b minus all right uh
2: emily well i am notorious for refusing to grade things (laughs) 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 i just won't grade things or put them in top 10 lists but i actually agree with both of those answers in different ways they were sort of the same answer
1: Mm -hmm. okay i mean yeah this is i think this is the highest grade i've given a episode this season but i give it a b on the cusp of b plus so yeah same um I still I think Look it, at us. I know. I think it feels the closest to like classic Buffy. Yeah. Like this episode, I mean, clearly if she was still in high school, the plot could have been a season 3 episode almost. Uh but yeah. Um okay, thank you all for joining me. Adam, thank you for being back as my lovely co-host. Of course. Uh, I
2: mean,
1: Emily Kim, thank you for joining us again. Thank um, you for inviting
2: me. It was nice talking to you.
1: If you all like Slayer Fest, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and, and Patreon. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at SlayerFestX98. And if you want to follow me on all platforms, I am at IanXCarlos. Adam, where can everyone find you?
0: You can find me on Twitter at TheAdamSass.
1: And Kimberly, where can everyone find
3: you? You can find me on Twitter as well at Kim And, Joe South.
1: and
2: Emily, where can everyone find you? I'm at Emily Nussbaum.
1: All right, cool. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all later. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.